Father, we exalt you in the heavens, for you alone are worthy. You are worthy to receive our praise and our honor, and so we lift you up. Father, we cast our cares and our anxieties upon you. We trust you with the things in our life that are are urgent, that bring anxiety to our soul, that we're worried about, that we're fearful of. Lord, we just cast it before you. We know, Lord, that you, God, are not only worthy of our praise, but you are the only one who is worthy to be entrusted with our cares and our needs. Because you care for us. You love us. You've displayed this over and over. So, Lord, we trust you with our lives. We trust you with the things in our lives. We trust you with the loved ones in our lives. We just, we bring them to you and we lay them at your feet. And we pray for those in our congregation today who have just need. Lord, whatever that need might be, we pray, Lord, that you would meet that need in Jesus' name. We pray, Lord, that you would show yourself faithful to them in Jesus' name. And Lord, lead and guide them that their eyes and their heart would be fixed solely on you, trusting you to be their source of provision. And Father, we gather together as a church. We look forward to next weekend while we'll be celebrating your resurrection. We pray, Lord, that even now you'd be starting to move and and mobilize in people's hearts that they might come and join us together as we proclaim the gospel and the great news that you are alive and that changes everything. Father, we pray for all of the events that are going to happen here this week, the Seder meals and the prayer time on Friday. Lord, all of these things, we just trust it all into your hands and pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and lifted up in it all. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to to worship and to gather together with other believers. And God, now may our hearts be soft and tender towards your word, that you might speak truth to us and we might see the truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Thank you. Well, good morning. What a... Great morning. It's windy out there. Everybody walked in and they're all starting to do this, except for me. So if you would, uh, if you'd like to avoid all that hassle, I know a good barber. And uh, it is a good morning for us to be able to lift up Christ. If we are, uh, we started a message series last week entitled Lifted Up. And, uh, and we started last week by taking a look at a kind of an obscure passage from the Old Testament, which um, uh, focused on 
the Israelites got themselves in trouble. They started grumbling and complaining about what God was doing in their life. They didn't like it. God brought a, a justified judgment upon them. These serpents kind of came out of the woodwork and started biting them, and some of them were dying. And so the solution wasn't just take away the, uh, the, the serpents, but God had Moses create a serpent, hang it up on a pole, put it in the middle of the people, and then if anyone was bitten by this snake, they would come and they would lift up their eyes upon it, and that act of faith, of lifting up their eyes, would bring to them life. God ultimately would heal the, the curse of death that they were on because of the snake bite. And we took a look at that passage, and we realized like this is a prophetic look forward to the moment when Christ also would be lifted up on a pole, and he would take the curse that we deserve upon himself so that we who understood our cursed nature could come and lift our eyes up to him and be saved from the consequences of our sin. Now today I want to dive more deeply into that. I want to build on that a little. Specifically, I want to dive into the concept of curses I was thinking earlier, uh, have I ever heard a message on curses? And I don't remember ever hearing a message on uh, curses in the Bible. Now, when I first think of curse, I actually think of curse words, right? We have a whole set of words that we have, we have classified specifically as curse words. And I grew up knowing that if I said any of those words I would have a stiff and swift penalty come upon me. I would get my mouth washed out with soap. Anybody get that? That was the punishment for, uh, for saying a curse word? I got my mouth washed out with soap. Actually, it, it escalated to just take a bite out of the Irish spring bar. <laughs> and that was the worst, right? Because then, you know, it's kind of stuck in your teeth a little bit. But then the punishment actually escalated because then they came out with soft soap, right? Then it was just a couple squirts into the mouth, and you could not get that out. I mean, you'd like swish and swish. I mean, you just tasted like soap forever. But even that consequence didn't stop me from using swear words. Even Jesus, we talked about this last week, that Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Well, there would be many times about my life when the overflow of the heart, right? I've got curse in my heart and it comes out my mouth. One time that I just starkly remember, and this is from second grade. I don't know why I remember this so vividly, but I do. It was second grade, we were on the playground. It was lunch recess and we were playing kickball. How many of you guys remember lunch recess kickball? Anybody? Right? So, so we played this, and I was good at kickball. I could kick the ball a mile. And, uh, and so our team was losing. We were down. I think we were down just like a run or two. There were two outs left. I knew recess had to be just about over. And, uh, and our team was, you know, up to kick. 
So it was us. We had two outs. There was a couple guys on base. And I knew that if I could just get up to kick, I could kick a home run and we would win the game. The only problem was, before I could kick, there was a kid named Matt. And he was up before me. And Matt was not good at kickball. And so I just wanted Matt to get up there and at least get on base, and then I could get up and do my thing. I could win the thing for us. But I needed Matt to get on base. So don't mess this up, Matt. Well, Matt gets up there, and he kicks, and the ball shoots off the side of his foot, kind of pops up, and pitcher catches it. There goes the the bell for recess. And we lost, and... My chance was over, and I was furious. I don't know why I was so furious, but I I was so disappointed, and I was so angry, and I was so bitter at Matt. And out of my mouth came curse words towards him. I don't think I'd ever spoken out such vile curses towards anyone, but I cursed him that day. I was angry and I was upset and it was in my heart and it flowed out of my mouth. I cannot say in church at all what I said on the playground that day. But here's the reality. is In ancient days, people had a much greater understanding and in some ways a much greater reverence for curses. If you had a curse pronounced upon you in ancient days, right? You, you did everything you could in your power to get out from underneath that curse. If a curse was spoken on you, you knew it was a big deal. And if you spoke a curse on someone, you also knew it was a big deal. Ancient people took curses seriously, far more seriously than we do today, because quite frankly, we don't really think curses are a thing. But they are absolutely a thing. The Bible talks about curses. The Bible describes the consequences of curses. And just because you don't think they're a thing doesn't mean they're not a thing. Curses are real. And you and I have to navigate every day the impact of curses. And we're going to talk about it today. And we're gonna under, or hopefully we're going to understand why the gospel then is such good news to those who are cursed. If you look up the word curse in the dictionary, you know, dictionary.com or whatever, here's the definition. Curse, a solemn utterance intended to invoke a supernatural power like God or a deity to inflict some harm or punishment on someone or something. Notice that Even in our dictionary, we understand that a curse is a solemn utterance. It's something that is significant. It's not just something you flippantly shout when the guy in front of you misses the ball and gets out in kickball, (laughs) right? To speak a curse is a big deal. It's a solemn utterance. Now, if you go to the Bible... Right? If you go to Genesis chapter 3, you'll find the word curse there. A curse is pronounced there. And if you look up that Hebrew word, 
and then you go find that Hebrew word and its definition, here's what you'll find. The word curse, Hebrew-wise, means to bind, to bind with a curse or a statement or pronouncement that is meant to bring harmful consequences into effect. Now, from that definition, there are three things you and I need to understand about curses. Number one is that a curse is something that is spoken or pronounced. It's a declaration, it's, and it's declared verbally. Curses aren't something that just happen to you. They're not something that you fall into. They're not just something that exists. Curses are things that are spoken. And this is tied together with the power of our words. Now, we talked a lot about the power of our tongues last week. We talked about how that fire, right? The tongue is a fire and it's connected to the fiery serpents. It is connected to the complaining of the Israelites and then the judgment that came. Here's the deal. God has given you tremendous power because you have the ability to speak. The ability to speak is actually tied to God in Genesis chapter 1. How did God create the universe? He spoke it into existence. He didn't think it into existence. He spoke it. He declared it. That's why we have that word universe, right? Una meaning single or one verse, uh, a spoken sentence. So universe, single spoken sentence. Let there be light. I was listening to this little podcast about, uh, by this astrophysicist who was talking about how they, they see the universe still expanding out in, in various ways. And then there was a, a Christian astrophysicist who speculated that maybe, just maybe, at the speed of sound, the, uh, the universe is expanding because when God speaks right? It's gone out and it's continuing to go out and that God's voice is still going out and the universe is still responding to his voice. That as he has spoken, it's still continuing to expand. This idea that God speaks things into existence then also translates to us because God then creates mankind. And he then gives mankind the ability to do what? Speak. In Genesis chapter 1, 28, 29, uh, God then gives mankind the authority over the earth. So we have authority to speak now God's will and his desires into the world. All you have to do now is connect that to this idea of prayer. Why do you think prayer is so important? Because prayer is mankind speaking God's will into existence. Just as God spoke the universe into existence, so we also can speak God's power and his will into our world. Your mouths contain way more power than you and I often understand. And in fact, James, the passage we took a look at last week, chapter 3, which is all about the power of the tongue, in James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, here's what it says. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings, whom have been made in God's likeness. Notice that James here is acknowledging that the tongue has power. Power to 
praise, right? Now, what is it? this idea of praise is something like to raise someone up, Amen. to lift them up. So out of this mouth can come praise where we have the ability to lift up and edify and exalt others, specifically God, our Father, but we also have the ability to speak curses. In verse 10, it says, Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. I was talking about this verse with my wife just Friday night. We were having some time and we were just talking together. And I said, imagine what it would be like if our family understood the power of our words. And if we committed ourselves to only saying into our family that which is life-giving, edifying, and good for building each other up. What if only, the only things we would say are things like, you know what, I just love this dinner. This dinner is so amazing. I'm so thankful for it. Oh, you know what, I just, I appreciate you so much. You're so good at doing those things. I, I, I think you're awesome in doing this. Can you imagine if our kids and, and Tosh and I, we just always were speaking that life and that goodness into our families. Can you imagine what our home would be like? Instead of, why do we have to have this for dinner? I hate this dinner. This is the worst dinner ever. Or, you know, get off of me. Why are you always doing that to me? I hate it when you do that. Now, can you Some of you guys are like, okay, that's my family right there. Well, that's my family right there. And here's the deal. Can you imagine how unbelievably different your family would be if... Instead of allowing both praise and curse to come out of your mouth, that you then said, no, I'm going to have some guidance over my tongue. I'm going to put a, a rein over this thing, and I'm only going to speak life into my marriage. I'm only going to speak life into my children. I'm only going to speak life into our circumstances. I'm going to let my words create the reality of the world in which we live. And I'm going to make sure that I'm not... I'm not doing what James says, my brothers, this should not be, where I'm destroying all of the good stuff with the bad stuff that comes out of my mouth. I hope you're seeing that your tongue has tremendous power. It has the ability to speak life and blessing and to exalt and lift up others, but it also has the ability to curse now, biblically, the first place we see curses being pronounced in Scripture is in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve have just disobeyed God. God tells them not to eat. Just one rule. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that tree that's in the center of the garden, and it doesn't take them long before they're standing by it. And then all of a sudden little conversation with a serpent happens and they're both scarfing down. And then suddenly they find themselves now realizing what they've done. They know they're guilty. They know they're now not right with God. And then they hear God walking in the garden. That's where we pick up the story. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says, Then... They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among uh, the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. We're really good at taking responsibility, aren't we, as human beings? (laughs) Genesis, then 3, verse 14, And the Lord God said to the serpent, Okay, here's where curse comes for the very first time. Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the curse pronounced upon the serpent. Again, remember, a curse is what? Spoken. It is pronounced. It's a statement. It is powered by word. Then God pronounces one on the woman. He said to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And then he pronounces one over Adam, man. But he said to Adam and said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is the first curse pronounced upon the serpent and upon Adam and Eve. The serpent, Adam and Eve, all find themselves judged in that moment by God, do they not? God looks at the situation and judges them. And he gives them a pronouncement. Guilty, right? They're they're guilty. This pronouncement, this judgment, this curse is now upon them. It's pronounced, it's spoken and declared by God. And when God declares a curse, he is righteous in declaring it, right? If God says, hey, you deserve this, trust me, You deserve it. Because God knows everything. God knows the motivations of the heart. He knows what went into that, you know, action that you took. There's nothing that we can do to hide anything from God. So when we stand before God, it's not like we're going to have good arguments for our sinful nature. We're not going to have good arguments for the messes that we've made. He's going to look at us and he's going to declare us guilty because why? Because he knows better. He knows it all. He's a righteous judge. Now, let me ask you this question. Does the serpent deserve his judgment, his curse? Does the serpent deserve to be cursed? 
Are we, are we sure about that? The first service was very clear. I would say Satan deserves a curse, don't you think? Satan's evil. He's, he's wicked. He, he's hurting people. Clearly, he deserves a curse, right? Do Adam and Eve deserve to be cursed? Yes. Now, who deserves to be cursed more, Adam and Eve or the serpent? Mm. Now, that one, doesn't, don't we, don't we want to kind of make that decision, that determination, who deserves it more? Do you know why we do this? Because believe it or not, we are influenced by this idea that God judges on the curve. You remember this? Remember when you were in high school and the teacher was like, okay, we're going we're gonna, to uh, grade this test on the curve. What, is, what does that completely mean? I wanna, I'm going to draw it for you up here on the, uh, on the uh, whiteboard here. Okay? So what does it mean to, to grade on a curve? Well, let's just say this line here represents mankind's goodness quotient. Okay, and you, you would determine a person's goodness by taking all of their good uh, and then you subtract out all the bad and then you get some kind of goodness quotient. Okay, so somehow, you know, if we take all of our good stuff and we take out all the bad stuff, we rate then somewhere on this line. And it, to be honest with you, we probably statistically, if we had the actual capacity to do this, it, with perfect judges, we could figure out that there are some people that are way over here. That this, is, this is complete badness, right? So this is bad over here. And this is absolute perfection. There's no bad. This is, uh, this is good. And somewhere along that line, right, we all fall. And so if we were going to, you know, statistically map this out, it would be a bell curve, right? So it would start out here. There's not very many, but it kind of escalates to a point where it kind of grades out like this. Is that good? That's not that bad. <laughs> it's been worse, trust me. Okay? Now, inside of this bell curve, right, we all fall. Now, here's, here's what we just know. Roughly, there's about 10% of the people over here. These guys are the worst, right? This is Hitler's over here. We got, we got serial killers over here. Politicians are probably over here. We got, we got, these guys are the worst, okay? But over on this side, you know, we've got, we've got this 10%. They're the, they're the best, right? So you got Mother Teresa over here. You got, you got, Billy Graham over here. Pastor Corey's probably over here. There's <laughs> not over there. And, uh, and so you got 10% over there. Now here's, here's what we would say. None of us in this room think we're over here. Nobody, because we're in church, right? None of us are over here. But none of us really think we're over here either. Because to be quite honest with you, we know we're not Mother Teresa. We're not Billy Graham, right? Those are the guys, they're just... They have their ticket already punched. It's just a natural thing. They're in heaven. These guys are not. 
But then there's this, this kind of interesting thing. There's this 50% line. And if this 80%, right, this is the, the vast majority, we all find ourselves in this, uh, in this arena. If you were to say, where do you fall on that line? I can almost guarantee you that the vast majority of us would say, well, we're better than most. And I know this. I've had this conversation with people. I remember talking with a, a gal one time, and she said, I said, well, we were talking about heaven, and I said, well, okay, so if you find yourself standing before God, and God says, you know, why should I let you in? What are you going to say to him in that moment? And do you know her exact words were, well, I've, I've been a pretty good person. I'm better than most. This is how we think about God. And believe it or not, I mean, you can be in church your whole life, and to a certain extent, we still kind of believe this to a certain extent, that God grades on a curve. And that somehow our job is to try to get as close this way as we possibly can to improve our chances of making it to heaven. Right? We think this. And I'm guessing most of us, we think, well, we're better than most. Here is the biblical truth. God does not judge on a curve. Because let's be honest with you. God pronounced a curse upon Adam and Eve. And what they did in the Bible is way, way better than the sins you and I have committed. I mean, they just ate of a tree they shouldn't have eaten of. You and I, we've done way worse than that. Let's be honest. And they got judged with the whole curse. I mean, Adam and Eve, you know, could be right here in that moment, like just one sin, and yet God still says, everyone is guilty. Now, if we take the worst of the bad, here's, here's what, like, this here, this is the serpent. Um, snaky. That's a question mark, sorry. Uh, give him a little tongue or something. Oh, that's just bad. That's just, like, horrible. Maybe I'll give him a little extra tail, a little rattler, whatever. It's getting worse. But let's just say, okay, we go... You can't get worse than Satan here, right? He'd be the, the worst of the worst. He really deserves the curse. But here's the deal. According to the Bible, there's only one person who doesn't deserve the curse. And if we we're going to put him on this, this you know, continuum here of goodness, you know, bad and good, Jesus is going to be over here somewhere, Right? Jesus' perfection is so much better than anything we could even understand in terms of good. He's not even on this continuum of good and bad. There is no bad in Jesus. He is separate from it. And God says everyone on this continuum is guilty and lives now under this curse. That's why the gospel is such an important thing. It's imperative for us to understand that we deserve the curse. 
It's one thing for us to say Satan deserves the curse because we think Satan's really bad. It's another thing for us to say we deserve the curse because we think we're pretty good. But even your best efforts are still like filthy rags, it says, compared to the righteousness of God. You and I all deserve the curse. Now here's the second thing about curses. Just as God is absolutely correct in speaking a curse over us because of our sinfulness, when a curse is spoken, what do we have to understand? There's an impact on us. And the second thing is that curses are restrictive. They bind us. I want you to think about this. I've never been arrested, but if I did something bad, right, and the the officers come to arrest me, what are they going to do? They're going to bind me. They're going to take my hands and put handcuffs on me and, you know, put them behind my back. And all of a sudden now, my ability to function normally is restricted. Does it make sense? So a curse is binding or, or restrictive in nature. So when a curse is spoken over you, it restricts you from living out the freedom that you would normally have. So if you're arrested, right, they'd bind you, and then they'd haul you off and they'd put you in a cell, right? And now you're in a tiny little room. Instead of having the freedom to go anywhere you want, everywhere you want, now you're stuck in a tiny little room and your life now is in bondage. That's the nature of a curse, Now, Jesus says an interesting thing at the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 4. At the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus stands up in his hometown Nazareth in the synagogue. He opens up the scroll in in the scroll of Isaiah, scrolls open to Isaiah 61, and he reads this passage. This is from Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 19. Now notice two of those things that Jesus stands up in front of everybody. And and once he's read this, he sits down, everybody's looking at him and Jesus says, This passage is fulfilled today. Basically saying, I am the Messiah. I'm the one who's coming to do these things. Proclaim good news to the poor. The second thing is to do what? Set at liberty or set free those who are captive. Now remember, a curse that is spoken over you is restrictive. You are now bound by it. You are now no longer free, but now you are a captive. You're a slave here. And Jesus is saying, one of my chief roles as the Messiah to show up here is to proclaim that that bondage you're in, you are free. No longer are you bound. No longer are you restricted. But now you have the freedom to live the life God intends for you to live. Later on, it says, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. The the Hebrew word for oppressed is a word that means to choke or to strangle. 
it literally carries with it this context of, of hands around your throat. And Jesus says, like that binding, that, that, that choking, that oppression, I've come to set you free, to literally take the hands off of your throat, to remove the bondage or the bounds off of your hands, to get you out of the, the restricted little cell you're living in and to set you free so that you can live the life free of the curse. Does that make sense? Jesus said, that's my role. I'm doing that as the Messiah. A curse has been spoken over you. You deserve it. But Jesus is saying, all those consequences, I'm now coming to relieve you from them. And that's the third part of a curse, is they bring about harmful consequences. And they bring those harmful consequences into effect. Notice what was the harmful consequence for the serpent. Going to crawl around on his belly. He was going to now be, uh, you know, kind of beaten down by all the livestock. He was going to be under all this stuff, and he also was, you know, going to be struck down. They put enmity between uh, the woman's seed and his seed. Right? There were consequences on the serpent. The curse was upon him. There were also consequences for the man and the wife. Specifically, if you take a look at verse nineteen, where God speaks over Adam. In verse 19 it says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you die. Till you return to the ground. Was God's design, original design for Adam and Eve to die? No. But because of sin, God pronounces the judgment of death. Now, Adam and Eve now are facing death. Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You will die. That is the curse pronounced over. That's the, the harmful consequence of our sin is death. In fact, we, we see this in Romans 3.23. Paul writes this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is Paul saying? He's like this whole like, continuum here. Everyone on the continuum, from the t- best 10% to the worst 10%, and everyone in between, everyone has sinned. They've all fallen short of the perfection of Jesus Christ. In Romans 6.23 then, Paul clarifies it a bit and says, for the wages of sin is death. The penalty or the consequence of of a guilty verdict over this sinfulness, right, is death. That's the consequence of the curse pronounced over us. So now I want to tie together another little obscure passage from the Old Testament to help make some sense of some things theologically for you. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, some rules are being kind of laid out for the people And in verse 22 and 23, it says this, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, or if a man has committed a sin worthy of death. Now, let's just stop there. We've just read in Romans that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and that the consequence or the wage of sin is death. So what does that mean? It means that basically we're all worthy of death here. It's all a curse here. 
If any man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged on a tree is cursed of God. They are cursed of God. So if you are hung on a tree, the Israelites considered you cursed of God. Now this passage was probably one of the chief reasons why many of the Pharisees just absolutely will look at Jesus and say there's no way he's the Messiah. Because why? Because we hung him up on a tree. And so clearly this man was cursed of God. He couldn't be the blessed Messiah of God. He's the cursed one of God because we hung him on the tree. We watched him die there on a tree. He's cursed. I'm guessing the Apostle Paul would have used this to justify his persecution of early Christians. Right? They're going around teaching about Jesus as being the Messiah when clearly he can't be the Messiah because he's carried with him the curse of God. And so how could God's Messiah be cursed? But Paul completely changes his tune later on, doesn't he? Because when Paul meets Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus, all of a sudden, Paul's eyes are opened. He realizes he was cursed. But it's a completely different framework. He wasn't cursed for himself. He was cursed for the 100% of us. Notice what he writes in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, and it quotes this, passage from Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul suddenly goes, he was cursed. Jesus Christ was cursed. He was cursed by God, but he wasn't cursed for his own sin. He was cursed because of my sin. He became a curse for us and that he took our curse upon him. You see, the very curse that caused Jesus to be hung on a tree was the curse you and I deserve. We deserve the cross. We deserve to be hung on a tree. But it was the graciousness of Jesus Christ that took our curse upon him. This is why it's so important for Christ to have been a man. Right? When we say fully God, fully man, we need Jesus to be a man. Because if he's not a man, then he can't take our curse. Because why? Because God had pronounced a judgment upon mankind. We needed the judgment to fall on man. But this is also why it's so important for us to understand that Jesus was perfect. He was sinless. He wasn't like us. Because if Jesus had just sinned one time, guess what? His death wouldn't have been for us. It would have been for his own sinfulness. 
But because Christ was sinless, he then could become a curse for us. And to take our curse and endure the cross so that you and I don't have to live under the consequences of the curse any longer. But we can then be free. We're going to take communion and remember the sacrifice of Christ. If you didn't grab one of these when you came in, just just raise your hand. We have some ushers that can bring one to you. But uh, why don't we just, uh, you know, this little communion pack, we'll get all the details out of the way right up front. We'll just get the, the bread out and then you can take the top off the juice and Do it all together. You see, communion is an opportunity for us to remember that the broken body and the shed blood that we remember Christ willfully gave for us, this actually actually should be our broken body and our shed blood because of our sin. It's a curse that every single one of us deserve. But because of his great love, he chose to take our sin and our curse upon him so that we don't have to live under the curse, but we can be free. Not bound, not restricted, but living the life that ultimately he created us to live from the very beginning. So Father, we remember the broken body of Jesus. We remember the good, the perfect life that you lived. And we thank you, God, for being willing to endure the cross and to have your body broken for us. So God, we take this bread today and we do so remembering you, that it was your broken body that removed our curse and set us free. Thank you, God. Let us take of the bread together. And Father, we also remember the shed blood of Jesus. We know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So we thank you, God, that you are willing to shed your blood so that we could be forgiven. And that your blood can be applied to our lives setting us free, liberating us from the power of the curse. Thank you that because of your shed blood, we are no longer under it, but free in Jesus' name. Let us take of the cup together. Now, God, may we go from this place with remembrance God, may we understand that we are no longer under the curse, but because of Christ, we are free. 
And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. May we live that way in Jesus' name. Would you stand with us as we close?